sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind. Was ist geschehen? Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind. Mädchen flüchten sie geschwind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Sagt mir, wo die Mädchen sind. Sagt mir, wo die Mädchen sind, was ist geschenkt? Sagt mir, wo die Mädchen sind, wenn in allen sie geschwind, wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Sagt mir, wo die Männer sind, wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Männer sind. Good morning, mutineers. This is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love. Joan Baez with Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind, and a happy Memorial Day. Good morning, mutineers. This is Labor and Love. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. Mutiny Radio. Social Justice Radio for the Bay of 
Beyond, and I'm the B, a.k.a. Bill Morgan, coming to you as I always do every Saturday morning from 10 to 12 with our labor magazine, Labor and Love. Why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war. Neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drive, drag, whether it's a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship, voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That's easy. All you have to do is tell them that they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. And that that was the words, those were the words of uh, none other than Hermann Goering. Hermann Goering who understood so clearly what so many of us don't understand. War is a trick hoisted upon us by our leaders and the people whose rights they protect and substantiate. Here we go with, uh, let's see. The great Willie Dixon. Making a kind of variety of the program. It requires a lot of different facts of life that we must know about. And when you think about the various nations of the earth, the various religions of the earth, the various nationalities, the various people all over the world. We have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. Have created miracles. But it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You made everything else. Wise men, great men from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world have all kinds of conventions and festivals. Spend all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have been making war. We wouldn't have to worry about nothing. But it don't make sense. It don't make sense. It don't make sense. 
when you can't make peace. Thank you. 
Willie Dixon there. Willie Dixon there, who anyone who listens to this show knows already was a, a conscientious objector during World War II, along with other major blues artists. I want to say Quincy Jones, but I'm not sure I shouldn't. Anyway, um, that song, You Can't Make Peace, it don't make sense if you can't make peace, uh, from an album that he cut in 1984 called Simply Peace. And here, under the leadership of the redoubtable Tully Kupfenberg, the thugs kill for peace. The war is really at home. And we heard this slogan, bring the war home. And that's what we're going to do. we got to bring the war home. we got to get them fucking comedy rats. They're all over. You can't tell where they are. Up and down, sideways, inside out. we got to watch where we are. we got to watch them. Before they kill us, can't take no chances. I mean, even them kids alive will grow up and be commies, right? If it's got to be a bloodbath, let it be a bloodbath. What I say is, kill for peace. That's the slogan. Just kill for peace. The more students we get rid of, the more peaceful everything will be. Julie Kupfenberg there with the Fugs and their version of Kill for Peace, which of course is, sounds uh, contradictory, but is uh, 
part and parcel of our military mindset. We had to destroy that village in order to save it. We have to kill more of our enemies so they'll stop bothering us and they'll give up. Uh, people don't give up. Okay, labor and love. Uh, this is the B. This is the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table, you're probably on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Let's go now to our win week in review. Big victory this week for strikers at uh, Verizon. 40,000 people striking Verizon. Workers Independent News Week in Review. I'm Joanne Powers. In a huge victory for nearly 40,000 Verizon workers who have been on strike since April 13th, two unions are celebrating big gains after reaching a tentative agreement with the company. The Communications Workers of America and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers say they have achieved their major goals of improving working families' standard of living, creating good union jobs in their communities, and achieving a first contract for wireless retail store workers. In a major victory for American workers, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago ruled Thursday evening that healthcare software company Epic Systems in Verona, Wisconsin could not require mandatory arbitration agreements where employees are forced to waive their rights to collective and class actions. The court says such agreements violate Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, which sets out employee rights on the job. Caitlin Madden is one of the lawyers who brought the case to the Seventh Circuit. One of those rights is the right to join with other employees to discuss with their employer issues of their compensation and their conditions of employment. Arbitration agreements that require employees to bring any claims they have individually prevents employees from joining together. It's very important to provide individual workers with a counterbalance to the power of the employer. Allowing employees to join together is an important way to do that. Fast food workers across Chicago walked off their jobs Wednesday morning, kicking off two days of protest culminating with thousands of low-wage workers marching on McDonald's annual shareholder meeting in Oak Brook, Illinois. The workers are demanding $15 an hour and the right to unionize without retaliation. Strikers brought the lunchtime rush to a halt at the chain's flagship rock-and-roll McDonald's store. Workers moved the protest to McDonald's headquarters in Oak Brook Wednesday evening, planning an occupation and night-long encampment. Angel Mitchell has been working at McDonald's on the southeast side of Chicago for almost four years. We are bringing the problems that we have with the corporation and other corporations like it to their doorstep. They can't ignore us. When they come to their shareholder meetings, we will be there. If you don't want to hear our message, then we'll bring it to you. After 1,100 members of the United Food and Commercial Workers voted to authorize a strike at 41 Kroger stores in Virginia, West Virginia, and Tennessee, the union has reached a tentative contract deal with the company, much better than the company's previous last best and final offer, where the highest raise that anyone at the stores would ever see would be 25 cents. Local 400 communications manager Jonathan Williams. The same week, the company gave its millionaire CEO a 17% raise. But our associates, who actually keep the stores running, who actually make the company a billion-dollar success, they get a quarter. And that was enough to upset a huge number of our members. They unanimously voted to authorize a strike after unanimously voting to reject the 25-cent raise. Very shortly after this vote was taken, we were getting calls from the company to reopen negotiations. 
Workers' independent news provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. There you go. They, they um, on uh, Win News, Workers' Independent News, they referred to the Verizon strike, a strike of about 40,000 employees of Verizon's, uh, what do I want to say, ground service, in other words, not wireless. The strike started on April 13th when some 35,000 workers walked off the job, making it the largest strike in U.S. history. Described by Perez, the Secretary of Labor, as a tentative resolution, Horizon's workers, unions, and management have reached an agreement. narrowing the differences and forging an agreement that helps workers and the company. Pettis said he expects the workers to be back on the job next week. The strike saw between 36 and 39,000 members of the Communications Workers of America and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers arguing that with the company making 1.8 in profits a month, 1.8 billion, Verizon shouldn't cut pensions, benefits, and pay. There are reports of up to 57 suspected incidents of sabotage to Verizon equipment in the first two weeks, particularly in New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts. Although Verizon hired 10,000 temporary replacements for the striking workers, the company struggled to meet demand. New orders and installations of its fiber optic network had significantly dropped, said a company spokesman, causing Verizon shares to slip by 1.49%. The strike is also expected to affect the latest employment figures because the striking workers who were not paid while off the job were classified as being unemployed during this period. Okay, so a big victory and one of the main forces involved were people picketing the Verizon wireless stores, even though the wireless uh, part of the company was not involved. The strike was not against them. All over the country, people picketed or went into Verizon wireless stores to support the strike and ask workers there why they weren't on strike. Well, of course, they weren't on strike because the the unions were not striking that part of the company. But the word got back all over the country. This strike was supported. So the largest strike in U.S. history. And we were reading the uh, Russian TV uh, RT version. Okay, so big news there. A major victory. 
Here's what George Bush told the nation to get us into war. I got a letter from old George W. It said, son, I hate to trouble you, but this war of mine is going bad. It's time for me to roll those dice. I know you've already been there twice, but I am sending you back to Baghdad. George W. told the nation this is not an escalation. This is just a surge toward victory. Just to win my little war, I'm sending 20,000 more to help me save Iraq from Iraqis. And so I made it to Iraq in time for one more sneak attack into my old battalion I was sent. We drive around in our Humvees listening to the Black Eyed Peas and speaking fondly of our president. George W. told the nation this is not an escalation. This is just a surge toward victory. Just to win my little war, I'm sending 20,000 more to help me save Iraq from Iraqis. Celebrities all come to see us. Grateful they don't have to be us. Politicians play their best face card. Where is Bubba? Where's our leader? Where's our favorite lip reader? AWOL from the Texas National Guard. George W. told the nation this is not an escalation. This is just a surge toward victory. Just to win my little war, I'm sending 20,000 more to help me save Iraq from Iraqis. If you're hunkered in Fallujah, wondering who it was who screwed you, wondering what became of shock and awe, you are feeling semi-certain it has to do with Halliburton, Dick Cheney's why you drew that fatal straw. But George W. told the nation this is not an escalation, this is just a surge toward victory. Just to win my little war, I'm sending 20,000 more to help me save Iraq from Iraqis.
do not weep, maiden, for war is kind. Because your lover threw wild hands toward the sky, and the affrighted steed ran on alone, do not weep. War is kind. Hoarse, booming drums of the regiment, little souls who thirst for fight. These men were born to drill and die. The unexplained glory flies above them. Great is the battle god, great in his kingdom, a field where a thousand corpses lie. Do not weep, babe, for war is kind. Because your father tumbled in the yellow trenches, raged at his breast, gulped and died, do not weep. War is kind. Swift, blazing flag of the regiment, eagle with crest of red and gold. These men were born to drill and die. Point for them the virtue of slaughter. Make plain to them the excellence of killing in a field where a thousand corpses lie. Mother whose heart hung humble as a button on the bright splendid shroud of your son, do not weep, war is kind. And so it goes. That was the poem uh, <clears throat> War is Kind by Stephen Crane, the author of one of the great anti-war novels, uh, The Red Badge of Courage, about the American Civil War. And uh, that is actually where our Memorial Day ceremony, celebration, uh, comes from the American Civil War, the bloodiest war in American history. Because you see, we had Americans killing Americans. So after that war was over, General John Logan, one of the uh, heroes, quote unquote, of the Civil War, said that this shall be a day for decorating graves festooning them with flowers and so the day was called decoration day Logan chose May 30th because uh, it was not the anniversary of any specific battle so in those days in the 1880s 1890s people went on May the 30th and decorated the graves of those who had died in the Civil War. And then came World War I, which massive slaughter. This is one of the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Verdun, where over a million men were killed or wounded. Latest figure I read was 350,000 on each side. 
French and German. Do not weep, maiden. War is kind. So, what has war got to do? I've, I've played a lot of anti-war songs. We've talked about war here for the first part of our show. What does that have to do with working people? This is supposed to be a labor show. Well, first, let's start out. Who fights the wars? As the Hermann Goering quote tells us, uh, Goering was talking about some poor slob on a farm. Well, he might as well have been talking about poor working slobs because that's who fights the wars. You won't see our senators or our congressmen or our generals out there in the war fighting. You see a lot of young men and now young women probably scared to death, just want to get back home, as Gehring remarked, and out there shooting their opposite numbers in another army. More working class people. Working class people killing one another off. This is one of the real attractions for wars when uh, social situations get so bad and so crazy and there are piles and piles of young men and women out on the street corner without anything to do all of a sudden looking around them and seeing wait, wait a minute what's going on here this is a conspiracy and so it is of all the conspiracies that are sold to us like the economy or the nation or our national mythology War is by far the worst, because in war, we are called upon, we are forced to kill one another. Young men are taken and trained to be killers and sent out on the field of battle for what? To protect property rights. That's pretty obvious. That's why we went to Iraq. Lenin said that Wars, modern wars, are for markets, fought over markets. And of course, why are we in the Middle East? To control oil. And again, it's the working people who fight. Do they get the rewards of the war? Do they get any better lives? No. The most they can expect is to come back in one piece. And so many of them don't. Labor and love here. Today we're talking about war and the worker. You've still got Allen Ginsberg coming up. We've got this day in labor history about a great general strike. No, not the one in San Francisco. We're going to talk about an IWW strike actually during wartime. And hear about what happened with that. We're going to hear Mark Twain's wonderful war prayer.
and why we should boycott the World Cup in Qatar. Right now, let's listen to Radio Labor. Radio Labor is a worldwide compendium of labor actions. And this will tell us what's going on all over the world. Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on May 27th, 2016. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, labor organizations have filed formal complaints against Colombia for not protecting unionists or labor rights. The UN's International Labor Organization reports that women workers are not moving ahead in finding jobs and winning fair pay. And the Labor Start report about union events around the world. This is Radio Labor. Labor organizations have lodged complaints against the Colombian government for not living up to its commitments to protect unionists in the country. Colombia made the commitments in 2012 when it signed a trade agreement with the United States and Canada. Since then, more than 100 unionists have been assassinated in the country. The largest labor federation in the U.S., the AFL-CIO, has filed a legal case condemning Colombia's lack of respect for labor rights, such as the right to form a union, and bargain collectively. I talked to Hassan Yusuf about Colombia. Mr. Yusuf is the president of the Trade Union Confederation of the Americas. TUCA covers both North and South America and has the AFL-CIO as an affiliate. Mr. Yusuf is also president of the Canadian Labour Congress. I asked Mr. Yusuf what TUCA wants Colombia to do. They have to fulfill their part of the labour agreement that was signed as part of the uh, free trade agreement. And, and hold them to that, hold them account for that, because it's simply dishonest for governments to promise that you know you can have free access to a market, and these principles are fundamental to having free access to the market. And yet, they keep providing excuses why they can't do that. You know, Columbia keeps saying we need more technical assistance, we need you know more expertise in this area. I, I think quite often this is just another a delay tactic for them not doing the right thing and upholding their laws and enforcing the laws so workers can in, enjoy um, the protection that was promised by their government and similarly the human rights abuses going on in Colombia is directly related because workers are resisting the austerity measure by the Colombian government and employers in that country so for doing that Quite often, they're murdered for standing up and defending their rights in collective bargaining, defending their rights to join a union, defending their rights to say, listen, you can't impose austerity on us. And the Colombian governments need to assure trade union in their own country that they'll have basic protection to go to work and to do what is required in a democratic society to do union work without having to endure threats to your life and getting killed. A report by the United Nations shows that women are far from catching up to men, both in terms of finding employment and pay equity for work of equal value. Radio Labor's senior correspondent, Seamarie Ainsborough, reports. Millions of women around the world are falling behind in their attempts to win equal treatment as workers, both in searching for employment and in wages. A new study by the UN's International Labour Organization shows that women are still finding it difficult to enter paid employment. Since 1995, the number of women in the global workforce has increased by only 0.6 percent, 
Globally, 46% of women are employed as compared to 72% of men. This is despite significant increases in the participation of women in education. Meanwhile, the report confirms the results of other studies which show that even when women do find work, they are seriously underpaid. According to the ILO report, women earn on average 77% of what men earn. Lawrence J. Johnson is the deputy director of the ILO's research department. The ILO is the UN body which is focused on matters of work in the world. What we see over the last two decades, while there's been great strides in women in terms of education, those haven't translated into the labor market. We know that only about 1.3 billion women are engaged in the labor markets, where 2 million men are. The challenge is how do we create not only opportunities, but decent and productive work for these women. Several issues. One, engaging in the labor market to begin with but also ensuring that women have opportunities for decent work. We know, for example, half of the women engaged in the labor market are among the ranks of the unemployed, or what we call own account or unpaid family work, where they often lack the basic social protections, protection under labor law, and again, this right to collective bargaining. So it puts them at a strong disadvantage. So the ability for these economies to grow is also limited. Without women engaging in the labor markets, it puts countries at a strong disadvantage. Women are engaged in two ways. What we talk about paid employment, what we think about working for an employee or an own account, but also women's work at home. This is that unpaid work. And we know that if you look in developed economies, it's about twice as much as their male counterparts. And if you move to the developing economies, it's three times as much. So women are engaged, but again, because they're engaged so much in non-paid work, it limits their ability to participate within the labor market in terms of paid employment. And if you think about that down the road, when it comes to social protection, that also means that women are not participating and contributing to pension schemes. And it's quite alarming if you think of it this way. Two out of every three women that are engaged in economic activities are not benefiting from pension schemes. Mr. Johnson was asked about potential solutions to achieving more equitable treatment for women. Well, the solution is, is many ways. One is we need to make sure women have a voice. We need to make sure we have policies that promote women in terms of the labor market, but also look at these constraints when we talk about elder care, child care. What can we do as a society to ensure that women can contribute? Because if you think of it this way, we want to see economies grow, and women have a lot to contribute. And if we limit them from the labor markets, it's detrimental to the individual, but society as a whole. The new ILO study is called Women at Work, Trends 2016. It notes that the 23% wage gap between men and women cannot be explained only by differences in education or age. Instead, the gap can be linked to the undervaluation of the work women do and to the skills prevalent in female-dominated sectors or occupations. The study also points to discrimination and the need for women to take career breaks because of pregnancies. The ILO report estimates that if current trends continue, Closing the wage gap will take another 70 years. This is Seamory Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labor. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Star correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,300 stories our volunteers have collected in the last week. Our top stories section included links to news about the giant general strike over IMF-imposed fuel price policies in Nigeria, the sacking of 4,000 Mexican teachers for striking, and further escalations of the national protests against labor law changes in France. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. 
Norwegian hospitality workers won a huge victory in their long-running strike. There was an increase in the number of workplace actions in Cuba. A one-day walkout by 60,000 Belgian workers after their government proposed rollbacks to legislated rights. Argentinian workers continued their actions countering government austerity policies. Radio employees in South Africa started a wage dispute last week. Public transport workers in Madrid, Spain ended a three-day walkout last Monday. Lifeguards in the Indian state of Goa suspended their strike to allow for negotiations to start. Portuguese dock workers continued their weeks-long strike as riot police protected scabs who moved containers out of the port of Lisbon. And Nigerian municipal workers occupied government offices and were surrounded by the army and police as they demanded their unpaid wages. While in the same country, judicial workers walked out to protest a government decision to renege on an agreement that had ended an earlier strike. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the disproportionate effects of public sector job cuts on women in Canada, the unveiling of a mural in England that commemorates the Grunwick Film Lab strike by South Asian migrant women workers 40 years ago, and the debate over women-only trade unions in India. Our health and safety newswire carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the safety strike by Turkish miners and the deaths of two workers in a French factory explosion. Currently, Leverstart is running seven online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unions around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Radio Labor's newscasts are available on its website, iTunes, mobile phones, union websites, and community radio stations. Follow us on Twitter, at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. That was Radio Labor with their um, weekly worldwide labor report. Who fights in wars anyway? What would happen if people refused to go to war in huge numbers as they did in the late 60s? Made the government afraid to institute a draft because resistance to it was so widespread. Resistance to it was coming out of the very classes that the rulers wanted to co-opt the middle class as long as the ruling class can give middle class people the illusion that things are going to get better for them and for their children then things are fine once the government starts drafting those middle-class children and sending them to war to get shot, there's a huge protest. doesn't matter as long as the children of working-class people and others are sent. That's who's supposed to go. But if there are too many white kids sent, too many white middle-class kids sent, 
and things start getting iffy. And what has to happen is those soldiers have to refuse to fight wars. Here's Buffy St. Marie. Been a soldier for a thousand years. He's a Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain, a Buddhist, and a Baptist, and a Jew. And he knows he shouldn't kill, and he knows he always will kill you for me, my friend, and me for you. And he's fighting for Canada, he's fighting for France. He's fighting for the USA And he's fighting for the Russians And he's fighting for Japan And he thinks we'll put an end to war this way And he's fighting for democracy He's fighting for the Reds He says it's for the peace of all He's the one who must decide Who's to live and who's to die on the wall But without him How would Hitler have condemned him at Dachau Without him Caesar would have stood alone He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war And without him all this killing had to go on He's the universal soldier and he really is to blame His orders come is not the way we put an end to war. Government lies. Pero a mí no me crean. Don't take my word for it. Pero que no nos quieren aquí, dice Chihuahua. ¿Cómo está la cosa? Vamos a ver. Dicen que los gringos son unos hombres muy valientes. Por eso mandan latinos primerito para el frente. Y los ricos se presentan como gente muy patriota Por eso la clase obrera está en Irak calzando botas Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Por allá andan presumiendo sus aviones invisibles Que sus bombas solo matan a soldados y a civiles Ay, Chihuahua, ¿cómo está eso? 
también dicen que sus bombas no se han dirigido mal, han caído en edificios y uno que otro hospital. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele como testigo, pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele como testigo. Y cuentan que los Hussein son unos hombres muy matones, pero cómo van las cosas, a Bush no le llegan ni a los talones. Otros dicen que la ONU se opuso a la invasión, no sabiendo esa señora que Bush era su patrón. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele como testigo. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele como testigo. CNN, Fox News, Univision, todos dicen y dicen, y si lo dicen, por algo lo dicen, pero a la hora de la hora no sé ni lo que dicen, solo que otros dicen que esta guerra es ilegal, pero por nosotros ser gabachos, eso no se ve tan mal. Soy jornalero, disque ilegal, pero qué suerte la mía, si me voy para Irak, Bush me da ciudadanía. En la tumba, en la tumba, ya con esta me despido de esta gran calamidad. Les deseo mucha suerte descubriendo la verdad. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo. Ahí tienen la tele como testigo. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo. Ahí tienen la tele. Como testigo la 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 Vámonos Two days past 18 he was waiting for the bus and his army green sat down in a booth in a cafe there gave his order to a girl with a bow in her hair He's a little shy, so she give him a smile And he said, would you mind sitting down for a while And talking to me, I'm feeling a little low She said, I'm off in an hour and I know where we can go So they went down and they sat on the pier He said, I bet you got a boyfriend, but I Would you mind if I sent one back here to you? I cried, never gonna hold the hand of another guy Too young for him, they told her Waiting for the love of a traveling soldier Our love will never end Waiting for the soldier to come back again Never more to be alone when the So the letters came from 
One Friday night at a football game, the Lord's Prayer said in the anthem, sang a man, said, folks, would you bow your heads for a list of local Vietnam dead? In that set, we uh, started out with Buffy St. Marie and her Universal Soldier. And we ended up with a Traveling Soldier by the Dixie Chicks about the human cost of war, the people who pay with their lives or their limbs or their sanity or their mental health. And those like Dick Cheney, who made $39 billion for his company. And when asked why uh, he hadn't gone to war during Vietnam, he said, I had other priorities. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of the people who went to that war and were killed in it, and a lot of those who didn't want to go to the war and were killed in it, peripherally, peripheral damage had other priorities as well. The interesting thing is we keep electing the Dick Cheneys. We keep selecting them or we keep electing people who select them. So how do we get into these wars? Well, Francisco Herrera, who sang the middle song, Amino Me Crean, don't take my word for it, talks about how our media is distorted. 
our media tells us that what is good is bad and what is bad is good and that the beautiful is ugly and that the ugly is somehow beautiful and sometimes our governments grab onto situations in order to get us to fight in wars in order to raise that nationalist jingoistic spirit this is a poem by a young woman named Evie Shockley about uh, 7 9 13 ways of looking at the towers A 9-11 poem, 10 years later, with all due respect to Wallace Stevens. One, among 20 deadly catastrophes, the only thing that moved us was the felling of the towers. Two, we were triple stricken with grief, as if we had lost three towers. Three, the towers flamed in the summer sky, they were little flickers in the light show. Four, the North Tower and the South Tower were one. The North Tower, the South Tower, and the Freedom Tower are one. Five, I do not know which stunned me more, the outpouring of international sympathy or the outpouring of nationalist rage the white-hot ash still sifting through the air, or just after. Six, news media filled the TV screens with instant replays. The shadowy airplanes crossed them right to left. Our mood sought in the shadows a blameworthy cause. Seven, oh stout men of Washington, why do you imagine an axis of evil? Don't you see the proud towers lying in rubble around the feet of the bankers of Manhattan? Eight, we know manifest destiny and a century of economic domination. Know too that the towers are involved in what we know. Nine, when the towers cascaded to the ground, it marked the end of one of many mythologies. Ten, at the sight of the new tower revising the blue-gold horizon, even the most disaffected of Americans would gasp fiercely. 11. We rumbled over Baghdad in armored tanks. There, a loneliness overtook us in that we misequated the toppling of the dictator's statue with the felling of the towers. 12. The Muslims are praying. The tower must be standing. 13. There was oppression in all the democracy. We were dying and we were going to die. The tower spun up another story. Okay, and there was Evie Shockley with her reaction to the towers. Why do you invent an axis of evil? And you see that it's the bankers. The towers are all around their feet. All right, so our show today is on war and the worker. And 
I did uh, talk about the Minneapolis general strike. Uh, have a personal interest in this one. This is uh, where my mother grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, was there active in the uh, Farm Labor Party, the Young People's Farmer lab Farm Labor Party, and uh, well aware of the strike that was going on. This was a Teamsters strike. By the early 1930s, the Teamsters were already a conservative and often corrupt union, particularly in its upper echelons. But the locals were a different story. The workplace of Teamsters was the road. They saw a lot of work sites and talked to a lot of different people. They developed a strong sense of solidarity with other workers and their struggles. Talking about 1930s now, the early 1930s, and this is on this day in labor history on lawyers, guns, and money. By working in the coldest, hardest conditions, the members of the Communist League of America, Local 574 of the Teamsters, forced employers to cave so that coal could be delivered. The success led truckers to join Local 574 in droves. Minneapolis was an anti-union city. The union organizers prepare, prepared well for this strike. They knew that the employers would refuse any of their demands. Most important was union recognition and the sole right as bargaining agents as well as the ability to represent workers inside the distribution centers. They rented a large building for strike headquarters and organized a ladies' auxiliary to help feed striking workers. On May 19th, strikers attempted to stop scab drivers from unloading a truck when cops started beating them. Injured strikers were dragged back to strike headquarters where more fighting followed that left two police officers unconscious in the street. Power brokers of Minneapolis responded by organizing a thing called the Citizens Alliance or reorganizing it. Pro-industry quasi-vigilante group that had existed in Minneapolis since 1903. Serving as armed strike breakers. Pitched battles now. Cops attract, attack strikers who are trying to stop a truck from moving. Hundreds of strikers ran over to help them. The cops pulled their weapons and it's possible that the only reason large numbers of people didn't die that day is because the Teamsters drove a truck into the middle of it, splitting the cops into two sections and creating a scenario where they'd have to shoot at each other if they were to shoot strikers. The next day, fighting resumed, leading to the deaths of one cop and one leader of the Citizens Alliance. 
this point, the governor of Minnesota, Floyd Olson, took a leading role in mediating the strike. He mobilized the National Guard but did not call it in because he didn't want to alienate the labor unions who had voted him into office. Just a parenthesis here, my family lore, my mother would tell us that Floyd Olson had called out the National Guard to protect the strikers. Instead, he negotiated an agreement on May 25th, but the strike only ended briefly because the employees, the employers reneged on much of the agreement. On July 20th, 50 armed police escorted a truck to make a delivery. The strikers wielding clubs and other homemade weapons stopped the truck. The police opened fire with buckshot. Two strikers died and 67 were wounded. Governor Olson declared martial law and ordered the markets open for business. Olson called 4,000 members of the National Guard and began escorting trucks into the marketplace. On August 1st, the National Guard seized the strike headquarters and placed all the leaders into a corral at the state fairground. But the Teamsters managed to win. 35,000 members of the building trade unions walked out in solidarity. Public opinion turned harsh against the mayor and police chief with widespread calls for impeaching both. Strikers stated repeatedly that they would not return to their jobs without an agreement. On August 21st, the employers submitted a proposal to a federal mediator that incorporated most of the union's demands and the strike ended. Ultimately, the members of that union, of that local, 574, 554, were kicked out of the Teamsters by the uh, conservative, under the conservative leadership of uh, Daniel Tobin. A wonderful victory. And let's see, one of the keys to it was the sophisticated understanding of how to gain support by allowing certain kinds of economic activities to take place. For instance, the Teamsters could have shut down all trade within Minneapolis, but these guys, well-versed in ideas of solidarity, saw that in doing so, they would hurt local farmers. So they allowed local farmers to trade their goods in the city, but directly to stores rather than the big market area targeted by the strike. This helped build support around the region. This day in labor history, the Minneapolis General Strike, a major victory for organized labor. Just as the Verizon Strike, the largest strike in U.S. history, but you didn't hear that on the major media. The largest strike in U.S. history. Okay, let's listen to Allen Ginsberg now. Ginsberg, 
In this case, he's playing with a clash, and this is called Capital Air. And never likely to again either. May I welcome President, President Ginsburg. Come on, Ginsburg. the government where I live I don't like dictatorship of the rich I don't like bureaucrats telling me what to eat I don't like police dogs sniffing around my feet I don't like communist censorship of my books. I don't like Marxists complaining about my looks. I don't like Castro insulting members of my sex. Leftists insisting we got the holy fix. I don't like capitalists selling me gasoline, coke, multinationals burning Amazon trees to smoke, big corporation take over media mind. I don't like the tough bananas that are robbing Guatemala banks blind. I don't like KGB Gulag concentration camps. I don't like the Maoist Cambodian death Fifteen million were killed by Stalin, Secretary of Terror. He has killed our old red revolution forever. Like anarchists screaming, love is free. I don't like the CIA, they killed John Kennedy. Paranoid tanks sit in Prague and Hungary. But I don't like counter revolution paid for by the CIA. Turkey or Korea, 1980. I don't like right-wing death squad democracy. Police state, Iran, Nicaragua, yesterday. Please fair, please don't make it your secret police or for me. I don't like communism. I don't like capitalism, nope. Everybody's lying on both sides. It's a joke. The bloody iron curtain of American military power is a mad mirror image of Russia's red bevel tower. No hope communism. 
no hope capitalism yeah everybody's lying on both sides yeah, yeah, yeah. the bloody iron curtain of American military power is a mad mirror image of Russia's red bevel tower Jesus Christ was spotless but was crucified by the mob. Law and order, Herod's hired soldiers did the job. Flower power's fine, but innocence has got no protection. The man who shot John Lennon had a hero worshipper's connection. The moral of the song is that the world is in a horrible place. Scientific industry devours the human race. Police in every country armed with tear gas and TV. Secret masters everywhere bureaucratized for you and me. Aware, aware, wherever you are, no fear. Trust your heart, don't ride your paranoia, dear. Breathe together with an ordinary mind. Armed with humor, lead and help enlighten. Allen Ginsberg with The Clash and that one's called Capital Air got another one with The Clash called a Ghetto Defendant which we'll uh, play next week or one of these weeks upcoming the story goes that Ginsberg went backstage to a Clash concert in 1981 and during one of their 17 shows in Times Square during the Nisa tour. Ginsburg was invited on stage by Joe Strong to riff on Central American politics and instead Ginsburg taught the band his very own punk song, which after five minutes of rehearsal they took to the stage and played. And that was it, Capital Air by Allen Ginsberg talking today about war and the worker and one thing which is hidden not hidden certainly not realized is that people who are broke who have no food who have no place to live people who are barely hanging on people who are slaving themselves to subsist and feed their kids are in a war. They're victims of a war. They're refugees. Those homeless people on the corner are our refugees. Those people who are struggling every month to make ends meet and never seem to quite make it or never seem to quite get ahead. Those people who are dra who are 
go into the military because it's one of the very few choices they have and are then subjected to military discipline and brainwashing to become killers. Those people are victims of a war, and that's a war that's being visited on all of us, the 99%, the working people, by those who like war, those who gain from war, those who make money from war, like the Dick Cheneys. All right, one more thing, labor, labor history, of course. This is about a strike by the IWW during wartime. And you see the connection between labor and war. Like any industry, the generals and the politicians need people to go in and do the work to go and kill the natives or whatever it takes and be killed themselves. Anyway, this is about a wobbly general strike in 1917. Roger Paul War production required immense quantities of timber, and the IWW really controlled the great timber areas of the Northwest, therefore attracting the government's attention, particularly when the IWW engaged in strikes against the conditions under which logging was done. The general strike developed in the summer of 1917, and it spread up and down the Pacific coast. And it was led by the IWW. In the uh, summer of 1917, the woods were almost solidly organized. The lumberjack, the most uh, individualistic workers as you can think of, the big man idea, a Paul Bunyan complex. Now the solidarity was such, not one logger remained in the camps wherever we could get in communication with that camp to tell them that the strike was on. 50,000 lumberjacks, 50,000 packs, 50,000 dirty rolls of blankets on their backs, 50,000 minds made up to strike and strike like men. For 50 years they packed a bed, but never will again. tried every way to break up the strike. They um, sent soldiers in there. Soldiers that didn't, never had an axe in their hand, they didn't know they could lost if they walked around a big stump. They organized the Spruce Division. That's the way they used the army as strike breakers. They called them the Loyal Legion of Loggers. We called them the Lousy Long-Legged Loggers. <laughs> Wave the flag with one hand and rob you with the other. So we, we soon defeated their, their efforts because they were so patently on the side of the company. You know. Sometimes the superintendent of the mill would be president of the local. So the whole forces of the government, the army, whatnot, was set against the IWW and frequently they would be taken and put into like stockades to lock them up. So the idea occurred to transfer the strike back to the job. The strike on the job, in my estimation, was the best tactic that ever came out of the IWW. 
better than the sit-down strikes later because the workers stayed on the job and got their pay, but they slowed production down sometimes 50%. And that soon brought the bosses to their knees, quicker than anything else ever did. One of the things they would do, they would uh, work eight hours, and everybody would walk off the job. The boss was, uh, some of them would say, hey, we worked 10 hours on this job. Well, that's all right. We worked eight today. We'll work two more for you tomorrow. The last of all to give in was warehouse. We were striking for the eight-hour day, and we got it. And the Knights of Labor had failed. The AFL had failed. We made it in the IWW. Okay, that was a story of a uh, strike during <clears throat> World War One. Later, of course, the the leaders of the IWW were rounded up and thrown in jail for opposing the war. And the question was, why should working people from one country go and kill their brothers from another country? Uh, unfortunately, as people do, a lot of people got really involved in the nationalism and the patriotism. This is the age where they changed the name of the hamburger to a Salisbury steak and sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage. Just as uh, people during the whole Iraq War changed the, uh, the name of French fries because uh, the French government was too wise to join in such an obviously um, low a mean-minded thing as to invade a country and say that it was to free them. This is Labor and Love and we're coming to you from Mutiny Radio right here in the Mission District and I do want to say that month-to-month month, mutiny manages to survive, but it's always a really close thing. Our rent has been raised, and now we can see that Mutiny Radio's problems are part of the greater problem of the Mission District, a district that's going away before our eyes a wonderful place a diverse place uh, one of the cradles of Chicano culture and Chicano art and Chicano music um, but a wonderful place for everybody a real working class neighborhood and now it's going away the people who made the mission what it is are being priced out of it. And what are we losing? Well, among other things, we're losing places like Mutiny Radio, where people get together and do something for the love of it. We're losing a, a breeding ground for artists and progressive ideas. The mission's going away before our eyes as the market eats it up. People sell their homes and move out, and the people who come in 
don't know the mission in the same way. How could they? How can you stop this? Well, you can stop this one way by using the little organizations and the local things, shopping at the local stores, eating at the local restaurants. There's a wonderful one on South Van and 20th. Uh, San Jalisco appreciating the art and coming down to places like Mutiny Radio and getting involved Mutiny Radio is a lot more than just a performance space that you can rent it's a breeding ground for comics for videographers for painters and concept artists for radio programmers like me it's a real cultural center for the mission district so come on in use your local institutions become part of them and the mission will live on End of speech. Talked a lot today about uh, the problems that workers are going through, that will always go through in a market economy. So what about Qatar? Our final story today is from London Loves Business of all places. And London Loves Business is telling us we must boycott the Qatar World Cup. Here are five reasons. Qatar has insisted that everything is fine in Doha. That's the capital. No workers have died during the open con- during the construction of the Khalifa Stadium. Khalifa Stadium in the Qatar capital. They said that Stories like that were counting all workers who died in Qatar, not just the immigrant workers who are working on re- redesigning, rebuilding this stadium. So, Amnesty International went to Qatar and did a survey. The report alleges that migrant workers faced abuse while working on the Khalifa Stadium that will host the football matches for the 2022 World Cup. Amnesty International interviewed 132 contractors working on the stadium and a further 102 landscapers who work in the Aspire Zone sports complex. All interviewees reported some kind of human right abuse. The international body confirmed that the mistreatment claims are confined to the World Cup stadium site. This will be a major blow for which has been downplaying the deaths of migrant laborers that make up more than 90% of Qatar's 2.1 million population. 
Amnesty International's Director General said the abuse of migrant workers is a stain on the conscience of world football. For players and fans, a World Cup stadium is a place of dreams. Life like prison, squalid conditions, passport retention, wages withheld, lack of response from FIFA. Check it out. It's on London Loves Business. want to go out now. It's almost time to go out. I want to go out now, of course, as we always do with the uh, Internacional. I want to play some of this one. Don't you ever let nobody, well, you know what. Yes! 
some says no. Some like the way to Okay, Linda Tillery there. It's uh, a lot of bad things going on. But don't ever let nobody get your spirits down. This is The Bee coming at you from Mutiny Radio 2781 21st Street. Our show's called Labor and Love. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. Never ever let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Finally, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. This is the B signing off. Have a happy day. Come on down to the mission, the Carnaval. Come down, down to the mission and check out Mutiny Radio. Bye, everybody. Good week and good work. of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRatio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRatio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. 
And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak ceiling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship to your 20 Mission High vendor for a special 10% discount on the coolest, most original items in San Francisco. That's 20 Mission Hive with eight vendors and like them on Facebook at 20 Mission Hive. 20 Mission High for awesome events and updates. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds.
Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion. We run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsadai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. Well, hey there, San Francisco. If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find counter-offer, offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamylicious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They got them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Brenda's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son. and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Oh, happy hour. What could be happier than 23 comics doing jokes for each other and at a radio listening audience? Puppets, kittens, unicorns, porn maybe? Oh, well, stage time makes them happy and this super happy comedy open mic is open every Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. But you can also listen anytime by downloading the podcast at Mutiny Radio FM Index at Podcasts. PCRcollective.org. So come live or listen later or 
to every happy hour mic Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. at Radio FL Mutiny Radio. I just fucked that up again. What the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah, I got it. People, you got the Mutiny Radio FM tuned in, and uh, this is the Flat Black Plastic Show. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> 